Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, data, with episode 205 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know what that means. We are here to talk all things AEW, Rampage, and Dynamite, along with NXT. We have an absolutely loaded show for you, as we do every time we jump on these mics, and the Silver King is here to break down all of that midweek professional wrestling goodness that you guys know and love so much. It has been a whirlwind week plus here at Getting Over. Ten shows, including our two live broadcasts on Twitter Spaces, in a ten-day period. We have SummerSlam, Instant Analysis, we have NXT TakeOver 36, Instant Analysis, we had an Instant Reaction episode to CM Punk's return to wrestling last Friday. It has been crazy. The SummerSlam show is the number two most listened to episode in podcast history. The CM Punk episode is the number five most listened to episode in podcast history. And the other ones in that top five are all WrestleMania and Royal Rumble related along with our Seth Rollins interview from a while ago. So you know this is a big time in wrestling when we're doing these types of numbers for two shows in one week, uh, let alone two shows in a two-day period back-to-back, two of our most listened to episodes ever. But we're here to kind of wrap everything up is the way I want to put it after a long week. We're going to be talking about the NXT fallout from TakeOver 36. We're also going to talk about the rest of Rampage that was not CM Punk returning to professional wrestling, along with his appearance at Dynamite on Wednesday and certainly the rest of that show. There's a lot to get into today. We're not going to waste much time. A reminder that getting over is all about defy. So go ahead. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Take a moment out of your damn day. Be a mark for the Silver King for Vintage Chris Vanini and the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review for us on Apple Podcasts. Every single one of those is appreciated and they help this show grow. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We tweet the release of each show so you know as soon as it's live. We also talk about wrestling all week long. We share news and GIFs and videos and funny stuff. We tweet live during the four major shows. And we not only do live shows ahead of pay-per-views, uh, the pre-shows that we do on Twitter Spaces, but we also do pre- and post-show polls that you can vote in. So there's every reason imaginable to be with us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Now, we spent a good portion of the last episode reading DMs from you guys uh, regarding SummerSlam Fallout, and I'm really happy that we did that. We did get a number of AEW and NXT tweets this week, but due to my schedule, due to Vintage Chris Vanini's schedule, this needs to be a little bit more of a faster-paced episode, so we're not going to kind of read some of those comments on today's show. I do anticipate bringing them into next week's episode, especially if they're still applicable on the road as we get to AEW All Out. They're finishing up booking that pay-per-view. But yeah, just today's show, it needed to be a little bit quicker. On that note as well, we are both, myself and Chris, extremely busy. So Chris will be joining us for a number of AEW NXT episodes in the future. He's just not going to be on this one uh, because really the biggest story from AEW this week was CM Punk. And we already discussed that on Friday's episode. So if you missed that Friday episode, go back and listen to it. Uh, Also, don't please do not miss 
the SummerSlam Instant Analysis or the NXT TakeOver 36 Instant Analysis, two very important episodes as well. And you know what, while I'm saying it, don't miss Tuesday's episode either, because it was a big WWE episode where we talked about the future of the company. Uh, But we are here, of course, today to talk NXT and AEW. So we're going to start with NXT, where Samoa Joe opened the second hour of the show celebrating his NXT title win. He said he's happy about being the first three-time NXT champion, but he's not there to celebrate because he knows there's savages coming after him. Joe dared someone to step up, and Pete Dunne predictably came out to demand a match after all their stare-downs in recent weeks. Then LA Knight entered and said, the night time is the right time, which brought me right back to that Adam Sandler CD, that cult skit that you guys probably remember, some of you. And if you don't, you're uncultured. Go find the Adam Sandler comedy CD, the first one, and make sure you listen to that. Knight said he'd be Joe's first and last challenger because he'll take the title on his first try. Next out was Kyle O'Reilly, who was back to his dorky self. He was about to ask for a match when Ridge Holland attacked him. Uh, Champa ran in to attack Holland. We'll get to that in a minute. And then Joe cleared the ring to stand tall in the end. So I thought Joe's promo was fantastic. And Dunn stepping to him made plenty of sense. But Dunn and O'Reilly have stepped up to challenge NXT champions for like the last six months now. They did it to Cross. They did it to Balor. Adding Knight to the mix is interesting, but it's not like he's really done anything to deserve being in that spot, considering he lost the only feud he's ever been in, and prior to that, he didn't win shit. So there's nothing that was wrong with this, but it also wasn't great. It didn't say to me, oh my God, now Adam, go get excited about the NXT main event picture. After a commercial break, Duke Hudson uh, randomly stepped up to O'Reilly backstage and slammed his head into some lockers before they brawled, and they set that match for next week. Uh, We also had Timothy Thatcher against Ridge Holland. Thatcher nearly submitted Holland with a single-leg crab, but Holland powered out. They exchanged blows. Holland blocked a heel kick, delivered a headbutt, and finished Thatcher relatively quickly with a hooking side slam. The match was slow. It showed that Holland is still way too green if forced to wrestle for any length of time. And he's probably rusty too, considering he just came back from injury, but he still has a ways to go, even though you guys know I love Ridge Holland. I think he has a very bright future. Uh, Holland attacked Tommaso Ciampa when he went to check on Thatcher after the match. That explains uh, what I said earlier. Suddenly, Oni Lorcan and a returning Danny Burch showed up. Ciampa and Thatcher held them off, but Holland took out Thatcher's throat with his nightstick. All of this was just okay. The first half hour, and really almost the first hour, of NXT didn't seem like it had much life to it. And this was part of that. Uh, Later in the show, Dunn threatened Joe, Holland threatened Champa, and Lorcan and Birch said they were the rightful number one contenders to the tag team championship, all in a promo backstage. So it seems like they're really doing something with this group, but man, it's a group that like doesn't have that much personality. It doesn't really have one person who's like the general on the mic. Like you, you look at the inner circle, they have Chris Jericho, right? You look at the pinnacle, they have MJF. You look at uh, Hit Row or Legado del Fantasma, they have Escobar uh, or Swerve. I I reverse those. You need that front person. And Pete Dunne is that for this group. And it's not that Dunne's not a good promo. He's just not a great promo. And he needs to make up for Holland, Lorcan, and Birch. Lorcan and Birch, who look talented wrestlers, don't get me wrong, a little bit boring, right? So this group needs some pizzazz. And when Pat McAfee was the one leading it, It had it. Now it doesn't. And done being in that role, it's going to be a sink or swim situation for him. Uh, Indy Hartwell rambled about her engagement to Dexter Loomis. They set a wedding date three weeks from Tuesday on September 14th. Indy swooned and Loomis caught her. 
The way was nowhere to be found. And the gimmick, it just lacks something when they are not there creating consternation within Index. Uh, Later in the show, Johnny Gargano asked William Regal to not let the wedding happen on NXT. They had this hysterical argument over how you say the word bananas. Uh, Knight ran in and demanded to fight Samoa Joe. Gargano yelled that he didn't knock and Regal kicked them out. It was pretty damn funny. And that's another match that will happen next week. Gargano against Knight. Hit Row against Legato Del Fantasma was the main event of the show, the six-man tag team match. Ashanti the Adonis did masterpiece before two different monkey flips early in the match. I love how Legato tags in, by the way, with forward rolls every single time. It's a really unique thing for a team to just tag in differently. Hit Row does it also. They tag in with the back of their hands as opposed to the front of their hands. Something just different and a little unique touch that makes both of these groups extremely interesting. And I said groups, I actually mean factions, and we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Swerve definitely avoided Escobar in the ring, and Top Dollar took him down after a hot tag. He carried all three members of Legato simultaneously and hit a world's strongest slam with them. Escobar escaped an attempted finisher and singled out Adonis. Raul Mendoza hit a great tightrope missile dropkick on Adonis, but Swerve took him out with a house call. Swerve and Escobar finally brawled with Swerve hitting a flatliner. Top Dollar cannonballed the tag team members outside off the ring apron, and Swerve hit a 450 on Escobar, which I thought was the end of the match, but instead it was a 2.8 count, and I really did not love the kick out there. A swerve got flipped onto his neck on the ring apron, but B-Fab pushed Escobar into the ring post while the referee was turned around. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Electra Lopez appeared and hit B-Fab with a lead pipe. She threw the pipe to Swerve, who got distracted, as Escobar snuck into the ring from behind and rolled him up for the 1-2-3. Now, I didn't like the roll-up finish. Of course, you guys know I hate those. I prefer anything else, a crucifix, an inside cradle, whatever. But the rest of this was awesome. The wrestling was fun. Everyone got a chance to look good. And Lopez joining Legato is really smart booking. I always love when groups are not single gender. And Lopez officially makes Legato a faction. Four members plus is a faction. So now there's another faction officially on NXT. If this had a real finish, it would have been higher. But I still love the match. I'm going 3.5 stars. And B, it was just total entertainment. And it was a great uh, placement for it to be in the main event of the show. Uh, we had a million-dollar championship celebration early. Ted DiBiase put Cameron Grimes over to open NXT. Grimes admitted that his riches clouded his judgment, but DiBiase sorted him out, and he learned his lesson. They then said, to the moon together. It was a weirdly weak start, I thought, to the show, and probably would have been better served as a transitional segment at some point later. Grimes then walked DiBiase to his limo later in the show to say goodbye and gave him back the million-dollar championship. DiBiase insisted Grimes keep it, and Grimes realized that DiBiase actually switched the title with a plastic toy from WWE Shop, which was a really fun ending to this entire deal, with Grimes saying, that Dan, Ted DiBiase, one more time. I can't do that his accent. I can do the Dusty. I can't do him. Uh, this ended up, I think, overall being a perfectly fine angle between Grimes, DiBiase, and Knight. It's smart that they're moving on from the title because having the million dollar championship in NXT with all the titles that are there, it's completely unnecessary. Grimes' character doesn't need it long term. Now, I do wonder if he keeps the million dollar gear, which I think would be a nice touch. And it does look good. The black and gold with the sequins, like that's a pretty good look for Cameron Grimes. So I do hope he keeps that. Other than that, though, this all being tied up in a bow nicely, it was great. And honestly, 
DiBiase getting over on Grimes once more really was the perfect ending to this entire storyline. Recently, NXT's had difficulty telling long-term storylines and wrapping them up with a bow the way that you know we expect them to and we want them to. They did this one perfectly, and they got to get a lot of credit for that. Uh, Gigi Dolan and JC Jane fought Casey Kent Nazaro and Casey Carter. And I went into this match assuming that Dolan and Jane were going to win because they're the hot new tag team and they need to get put over. But the match was just okay. The Casey's separated their opponents and attacked with Carter delivering her dropkick splash and Casey winning with that elevated, uh, I believe it's a 540 splash for the win. They climbed the announce table and demanded a title match afterward. And that's a match I definitely want to see. But I have to imagine the booking will be an easy win for Zoe Stark and Io Shirai when it happens. But this overall was the best thing in the first hour of NXT. Later in the show, after the match, Mandy Rose said she could ensure that Gigi and JC don't feel the disappointment that they did losing this match ever again. And I thought it was a really strange way to proposition them, considering Mandy has had basically zero success in her entire WWE career, other than beating Sonya Deville once in a match that she was not allowed to capitalize on with a championship opportunity or even in her new tag team with Dana Brooke getting a tag team title match. Like Mandy Rose basically has had no opportunity to show that she can be successful in WWE. And you can even argue the opportunity she has had, she's lost. But now she's back in NXT trying to manage two up and coming women who similarly are not having success. And by the way, Gigi Dolan and JC Jane, who both I believe won singles matches only to then lose their tag team match together to set up the storyline. So I like that NXT is introducing new characters. I like that Mandy Rose is being given something different to do, but I just don't fully understand why that's the storyline and why she's in this role. I still don't even understand why she was brought back to NXT, which is loaded with women right now when she could be actively wrestling on Raw or SmackDown. By the way, Frankie Monet already exists in NXT, and she's kind of doing something a little bit similar already with Jesse Camia and Robert Stone. I would have much rather had her take these women under her wing and grow a female stable in NXT than Mandy Rose having a group and Frankie Monet having a group. It just seems unnecessary. So I don't love the booking of this, but I do like the new looks for Gigi Dolan and JC Jane, and I do think they have a future. This maybe just needs to work itself out. Maybe I need to give it a little bit of time. Not a huge fan right now. Uh, Raquel Gonzalez put over Dakota Kai for being a tough opponent who nearly got the best of her. Then she said she's been waiting for Kaylee Ray to cross the pond and challenge her. Frankie Monet interrupted the promo and threatened to take the title. It was a good confrontation segment. It made Monet sound like a legitimate challenger. I'd like to see Monet do something, though, to become a legitimate challenger. I think Gonzalez Monet makes sense as a good feud and Kaylee Ray being the next feud for maybe whatever the upcoming special event or takeover is going to be. But again, we need to get there. And right now, there's really no number one contender for Raquel Gonzalez. Uh, Kaylee Ray, speaking of, fought Valentina Feroz. Uh, KLR had a great entrance, but Feroz looked like a cartoon with this really weird headdress and feathers on her shoulders. KLR won very quick with the gory bomb. It was the perfect type of squash to get her an easy win and a good introduction to her for United States fans. But obviously, we do want more from her in the future. We had Carmelo Hayes against Odyssey Jones in the finals of the NXT breakout tournament. Hayes and Jones got to show some personality in short interview segments early in the show, but neither of them were very good. Uh, The personalities were fine. The interviews weren't. 
Uh, Hayes hit some big moves early in the match, but Jones caught him flying on a springboard and just slammed him in a really cool spot. Jones pounded on him, but Hayes wore him down. There were loud chants for both guys dueling chants back and forth, which was nice to hear. Hayes dodged Jones into the post and hit a flying scissor kick, but Jones didn't stay down. Hayes went for another, but Jones dodged it and hit a standing frog splash. He went for the cover, but Hayes tilted him in a crucifix pinning combination for the win. And then after the match, they shook hands. Also after the match, Hayes got his contract from William Regal. He gave Odyssey Jones a shout out, but he said he won't decide who he's going to face yet. But when he shoots, he does not miss. Now, despite Jones being green and Hayes still needing experience, this was a fun match that the NXT crowd got behind and elevated with their energy and all of their chanting. They told a great story of Jones being tough to put away despite Hayes' obvious skill and athleticism. Hayes was a clear top prospect from the day he debuted in NXT, and this was the right booking. They're treating him the same way they did Zoe Stark. They recognize the talent, and they're going all in with it, and you have to give NXT credit for that. It was also a fun enough match. I'll give it three stars and like a B minus, but this was a rough tournament overall. The final was good. I think what I would have preferred is Carmelo Hayes against Duke Hudson in the final, and a you know that we would have gotten a better match out of them that I think would have put Carmelo Hayes over more than this did with Odyssey Jones being so green. But again, maybe that's just a nitpick. Uh, Boa fought Zion Quinn, and this is Zion, but it's spelled X-Y-O-N. Uh, Boa was focused on Mi Ying when Quinn blindsided him and actually pinned him in a relative squash match. Quinn is a former Australian footballer, uh, Daniel Vidot. So those of you Aussies or Kiwis who are listening, maybe you can tell me whether he was actually good or a name that people know. I mean, I looked up his profile. Seems he played for a while, but I don't know that he was a star or anything like that. But he's been in NXT for a while. I actually think he's been in the Performance Center for three years. This was his NXT debut on TV. Uh, He did make one appearance on SmackDown losing to Sheamus. That was at the very early stages of the pandemic. Uh, But look, I I presume the pandemic stunted his development a little bit, but he has a great look. The name's pretty interesting. The spelling, at least, is very interesting. And I think this guy could be something, but it was match one, day one, and we'll kind of see what happens. Uh, Diamond Mine was also shown practicing, and it appears as if Julius and Brutus Creed have joined to fill out the faction now that Tyler Rust was basically fired one week after it debuted. The Creeds are Jacob and Drew Casper, who are former All-American amateur wrestlers. Actually, I know Jacob is a All-American. I don't know if Drew was an All-American. I think he was just a collegiate wrestler. But both amateur wrestlers with name value who have been in the PC. This makes a ton of sense for them to be in this faction. It makes a lot of sense for not just on TV, but potentially in reality in the PC, Roderick Strong uh, to work with these guys. And I'm just kind of excited to see some of this young talent get brought up. I know there's a lot of consternation and concern over NXT going young, but when you have talent like the Caspers, like Parker Bordeaux, like uh, Steiner, you know, there's a lot of dudes in the PC right now who are young and, and back in the day in 2014, 2015 would have gotten TV time that now probably we wouldn't see into 2022 or 2023. And now maybe they're getting opportunities. So again, we don't know what NXT is going to look like. They taped, I believe, three shows in two days. So the next two weeks are already taped. I have not seen a single spoiler for any show and I do not plan to see a single spoiler for any show. So we're going to talk about it on this podcast every week as if it's a live program. Um, You know, those spoilers are, they're readily available, but you need to seek them out. You know, I'm assuming nothing major happened where 
it would leak and, you know, go on Twitter to the point that like, you can't avoid it, right? So that's what I'm going to try to do. I know you guys don't like spoilers and that's basically how we're going to treat things on this podcast. So I thought this was a, a fine edition of NXT. I didn't think it was anything special. Uh, really two weeks in a row, you know, there, there was a time uh, before the last two weeks where it was banging. And I was saying the same thing about Dynamite, that it was banging for like three or four weeks in a row. I thought last week's NXT was good. You know, this week's I thought was fine. It was just okay. There were highlights and there were lowlights. And really, I kind of feel the same way about Dynamite. I thought last week's Dynamite was good. And this week's Dynamite, I just found incredibly boring. I did. Uh, So we're going to get into talking about AEW. But I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a conversation similar to the one I just had about NXT because I felt the show gave about the same amount of interest. Now, what we're going to do is talk about AEW Dynamite and Rampage simultaneously. Things that happened on Rampage, other than, of course, CM Punk's debut, I'm going to mention along with their concurrent or related segments on Dynamite. That way we get a fuller picture of storylines. I didn't like the way I did it last week where I talked about Rampage first and then separately talked about Dynamite. I had to go back and forth. It didn't really make a lot of sense. So we're going to kind of combine them into one larger segment. And hopefully this makes sense. You guys can let me know whether you like it better or worse um, this way. So time to move on to Dynamite and Rampage. We're going to start with CM Punk because we're probably always going to start with CM Punk whenever we get CM Punk. Uh, He was interviewed by Tony Schiavone at the top of the 9 p.m. hour on Dynamite, and I don't blame them for doing that one bit, but AEW really stretched this out. Like during the first match, Tony Schiavone promised that CM Punk would be up next, and he wasn't. They did the same thing again later in the hour, and he wasn't the next thing that we saw. So Look, I get it. It's a typical wrestling or show tactic, live show tactic. I'm not going to argue about it. But as a viewer, I'm like, oh, I can't wait to see CM Punk. This is great. And then I don't see him until the start of the 9 p.m. hour. It's a little bit frustrating. So just figured it was worth saying. Uh, CM Punk did get a great response, but there's obviously no matching what happened in Chicago. The first half of the interview was basically pausing just to give the crowd time to chant. Finally, Punk said he wanted to test himself against Darby Allen and the other young talent in AEW. The crowd did a yes chant and Punk said it was someone else's shtick and the crowd needed to be more patient, which got a really big pop. And that was basically the entire segment. This paled in comparison, of course, to what he did on Rampage. Nothing could have lived up to that. Shivani hampered, I thought, the entire segment. CM Punk does not need to be interviewed. He just needs to be given a microphone so he can speak extemporaneously. He did prove his proficiency on the mic with his quick thinking to the yes chant to answer it that simply and succinctly without giving anything directly away takes a lot of skill. But AEW does rely far too often on these interview segments with Tony Schiavone to allow talent the ability to cut promos. And I know it's just their way of differentiating their on-screen product from WWE, but it's so much clunkier And it's really the reason why WWE does not do this. Don Callis and Kenny Omega do not need to be prompted to cut a promo. Chris Jericho does not need to be prompted. MJF, CM Punk, these guys are extremely talented promo people. Now, if there is a talent that may need a little help along the way, I think Tony Schiavone is a great person to do that with them, whether it's backstage or in the ring. But the whole point of what we like about AEW promos is that they're not canned and scripted. So just let people go out and cut not canned and unscripted promos. 
I don't see why that's so difficult. So just don't ever do this again with CM Punk. Let him just cut promos on his own with a mic. Let him walk out with a promo, cut it on the stage and go back. That's all we need from him. Uh, Matt Hardy fought Orange Cassidy. This was the opening of the show and there was expected comedy at the start of the match. Hardy caught Orange flying with a side effect at ringside and later splashed Mountain inside for a near fall. Hardy's nose got busted open the hard way style uh, when he fell on a DDT, I think it was. It might've been a crossbody, I'm not sure. And Orange did Jeff's senton bomb, Jeff Hardy that is, uh, with his hands in his pockets. Then Orange hit Twist of Fate for a near fall. He countered Hardy's leech submission into a pinning combination, hooking the ankles and putting his hands in his pockets for the win. Now look, you guys know, I enjoy Orange Cassidy, but there was way too much comedy and Hardy did not get the type of match out of Orange that I prefer when he fights younger or just more athletic wrestlers like a Jungle Boy or a Pac or a Kenny Omega. This was just okay. And considering there were probably a lot of people tuning into Dynamite to see CM Punk, I understand they wanted to start with a match that featured a familiar face to some lapsed fans, Matt Hardy. But there are so many other people in AEW that they could have used in this spot and just done this match later in the show. This was one of the weakest opens to Dynamite in a long time. Uh, Now, what followed it was really good. Chris Jericho discussing his future. Jericho said everyone has been celebrating AEW's great week, but he's been depressed after losing to MJF for a third time. Jericho said he can't get the loss out of his mind, and he proposed a rematch at All Out with the stipulation he'll never wrestle in AEW again if he loses. MJF came out in this hysterical shirt that read MJF 3, Jericho Blow 0, and said Jericho keeps challenging him because he's the only way Jericho can stay relevant. MJF said he planned to never wrestle Jericho again, but retiring him would be legendary. So he accepted on the condition that Jericho actually thinks it over and reconsiders the ramifications of losing to him one more time. This whole segment was really strong. It was the expected booking, but Jericho and MJF both sold the stipulation well. I do find it funny. We got to be honest here on this podcast. AEW is so adamant about not doing rematches, but there's already two on the all-out card. And AEW is also so adamant about not using old talent, but there's also four on the all-out card. Like, you can't say those things and then go ahead and do the opposite, right? Like, you got to kind of live up to what you're promising here. Uh, But what's interesting in particular about the rematches is that neither of them were necessary to book that way and could have easily been avoided. The fifth labor of Jericho since MJF showed in other matches that you could have multiple stipulations. For example, with Juvie, he picked him as an opponent and said Jericho had to hit a flying move for the finish. He could have simply made a stipulation that Jericho's career is on the line and he can't use the Judas stuff. He can't use the Judas effect and the song can't be sung. So that could have been the fifth labor. There was no reason to rush that match and give Jericho another loss to MJF. It's exactly 50-50 booking. It's exactly what WWE does where they gave MJF a win. That way when Jericho beats him, it doesn't sting as much. But you don't need to protect MJF. He doesn't lose. He barely ever wrestles. So they could have just had that match with all these stipulations. It would have been built up a lot more. People would have been really excited about it. And maybe people would have actually expected Jericho to lose or they thought Jericho losing might be in the cards potentially. Now you go into it, you go, there's no way Jericho's losing. So I just think that was a little bit of a mistake on Tony Khan's part. 
Now, over on Rampage, there was the first of two tag team eliminator semifinal matches. Private Party fought Jurassic Express. Uh, Christian Cage pumped up Jurassic Express before the match, and he threatened Kenny Omega, who later said he'd retire Christian for good at All Out. The Young Bucks watched from the stage. Isaiah Cassidy hit an absolutely insane elevated Canadian destroyer on Jungle Boy. That is one of the sickest moves, I think, of the year. Uh, But Mark Quinn then completely missed a springboard shooting star press on Luchasaurus. Jurassic Express came back with an assisted cutter for a near fall. Cassidy showed Jungle Boy's entire ass crack, literally pulled up his tights all the way, attempting to cheat on a roll-up. Jungle Boy countered Gin and Juice with a Tornado DDT, and they hit Thoracic Express for the win. There were no tags to be found in this match. It was all spots. It was a total spot fest. Exciting action, just nothing too special. We had another tag team eliminator semi-match on Dynamite, the Lucha Bros against the Varsity Blondes. The Blondes cut a mediocre taped promo. Ray Phoenix hit a really sick springboard dropkick and stepladder spinning heel kick. Pentagon then assisted Phoenix with a Tope Suicida outside. There were no rules in this match whatsoever. The Lucha Bros stereo thrust kicks and an assisted pile driver for the win. The best part of the entire segment was when the Lucha Bros and Jurassic Express teamed up to get some shots on the Elite. Now, it's blatantly obvious that the Lucha Bros are going to advance. We just had Jurassic Express fight the Elite, uh, you know, uh, the Young Bucks for the tag team titles. If they did it again, it would be a third rematch on the card. I don't think that's going to happen. I assume we're going to get the Young Bucks against the Lucha Bros in that steel cage match. Now, the match Friday should be much better than this one, which was largely boring. I'm not a fan of the Varsity Blondes at all. I do not think they are a TV-ready team, but Jurassic Express against Lucha Bros on Rampage this week should be an absolute banger. I'm very excited about that. Uh, On Rampage, Jade Cargill fought Kiara Hogan. Jade won in about one minute with the Glam Slam. Now, to be fair, they didn't really have more time to give this, given how much of the show CM Punk took on Friday. But if we're also being honest, AEW probably didn't care to give them more time either. But yeah, Cargill beat Hogan. And then over on Dynamite, Jamie Hayter fought Red Velvet. They put a women's match in the first hour, which was a surprise. Uh, Velvet did two tope suicidas that flattened Hayter outside and looked extremely dangerous. But Hayter didn't even sell them and just threw Velvet headfirst into the ring post. Velvet did a Casadora into a face buster, then completely missed a standing moonsault that she was supposed to hit. It was terrible. Uh, Hater answered with a backbreaker and a clothesline to beat Velvet, who just challenged for the title a week ago, and she beat her clean. Chris Statlander made the save during the attack. Now, I do think it's good that Hater got to look strong, but this thing was a mess. It only got seven minutes, including the double commercial break. Over on Rampage, we had John Moxley fight Daniel Garcia. Mark Henry was slightly better doing a double interview segment. Garcia reversed Paradigm Shift into a bad sharpshooter, but Mox was able to grab his neck in a cinch uh, and get a bulldog choke for the win. A 2.0 attacked after the match. That led to Darby, Allen, and Sting coming down. They plus Eddie Kingston cleared the ring, and Sting got to hit his signature moves, which did get a huge pop from the crowd. Over on Dynamite, Darby, Allen, John Moxley, and Eddie Kingston fought the wingmen in a six-man tag team match. Mox literally bit J.D. Drake before Darby hit an avalanche code red. There was a random brawling like portion to the match. Uh, Darby then hit an up and over cutter plus the coffin drop for the win. And Danny Garcia attacked Darby after the match anyway. None of this hit with me in particular. Garcia has not lived up to the hype. Apparently he had this really good independent wrestling match with Wheeler Yuta somewhere. Um, but 
in AEW, he's done nothing for me. Garcia, Yuta has impressed. Garcia has not. He does have a match with Darby next week. That could be a banger. I could see them working together well from a size standpoint. The six-man match with the wingmen, it just felt like a total waste of time to me. Mox later announced that the contract he sent to Japan to get signed for All Out was indeed inked by Satoshi Kojima, who once held the New Japan IWGP Heavyweight Championship and the All Japan Triple Crown title simultaneously. This guy's 50 years old. So now we have Kojima, Paul White, and Christian on the All Out show, all aged 47 or older. And that's not even counting, of course, Chris Jericho, as I mentioned earlier. The expectation here was Hiroshi Tanahashi or Minoru Suzuki or someone of that caliber. I'm not saying that Kojima is not a good wrestler, but he's 50 years old and he's not really a name that people are excited about in 2021. To say that this is a disappointment would be an understatement. Uh, Kenny Omega, Don Callis, and company all came out ready to do an interview when Christian Cage interrupted and chastised Callis for getting Omega into the business in favor of more established talent at a very young age. Callis took uh, Christian's criticism but said he's no different than any other major promoter and even name-dropped Vince McMahon. Omega said, you think you know me, referencing Edge twice. And then Callis said Omega would prove nothing's changed in Christian's career because he's never been better than second best. Christian got angry and tried to attack, but he got beaten down until Frankie Kazarian made the save. So look, this was an interesting segment, I will say. Name dropping Vince in the way Callis did. I actually didn't have a problem with it because he was putting him alongside the greatest promoters in wrestling history. But when he did name drop Vince, it was in a negative connotation. So certainly that is an interesting decision. Edge forcing the you think you know me edge references twice, like screaming them into the mic, it almost took away the the uniqueness of it. Like if he had just said it as part of a promo, it would have been, oh wow, that's funny he referenced Edge. But instead he was like jamming it in Christian's face. Although I guess that was the point because they were trying to show that he's not anything compared to Edge. But the truth is, Christian's not anything compared to Edge. Like I've said this on the podcast many times. I don't disrespect Christian's ability. He's a very good professional wrestler, no doubt about it. But he's always been that second fiddle. And it's just because he doesn't have that charisma, that personality, that edge and other people that he's been associated with have had throughout their careers. So again, this Omega Christian match, I'm not necessarily excited about it for all out. I do think it's going to bang. I think they're going to have a great match. It's going to be four stars or better. No question about it. But the most anticipated match on All Out now is CM Punk against Darby Allen. This is a far number two. And there's probably some people who are more excited about, you know, Britt Baker and Chris Statlander, just because Chris is good and it's a solid women's match for a pay-per-view. And there's other people who maybe love spots who are more excited for the Young Bucks against potentially the Lucha Bros in a steel cage. Personally, I'm not, but other people probably are. This Omega Christian match, we saw it already. And it was good, but at the same time, we know Christian's not going to win the AEW championship. So I don't know how I really feel going into this match in particular at All Out, but I do think the feud's been interesting, and I do like that it ratcheted up a little bit with the you know, ability to insult Christian and hit him where it hurts the most. And they did succeed in doing that. 
Uh, the Factory fought Gun Club in a tag team match, a six-man actually, I think it was. Uh, QT Marshall was jawjacking with Paul White, who was on commentary, when he got caught with an inside cradle. This match was three minutes. It was nothing. I don't care about Gun Club. I don't care about the Factory. I don't care about QT Marshall. And I do not care about Big Show. Zero point zero. Dan Lambert and the men of the year were together backstage. Lambert made fun of all the small gymnast type guys saying soft and weak fans want to see soft and weak wrestlers. He also joked about the guy who cried when CM Punk returned last week. Lambert then put over the men of the year and all of their martial arts acumens that I think maybe many fans didn't know about. This worked extremely well, actually, a bit to my surprise. I wish Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page had been allowed to speak, but it was a strong promo segment that gave them some direction going forward. Malachi Black fought Brock Anderson, and this was actually the main event of the show. Black, in an early promo, gave Anderson an out to the match, suggesting he just take a count out, apologize, and go backstage. Otherwise, he would destroy him and everyone in the Nightmare family. Arn Anderson later said his son is over his head, but he has guts. Arn chose not to throw in a towel early, and Brock got a like distracted shot on Black before eating a black mask quickly. Black then waited like 10 seconds to cover him before the win. And I thought that was kind of funny. Honestly, the Black Mass and Black waiting to do the cover was the best part of this entire segment. Uh, Black then squared off with Arn after the match. Arn blocked the Black Mass with his arm. So Black kicked him in the balls and then hit a Black Mass anyway. And then right as the show was about to end, Lee Johnson ran in super late. Commentary said Black may be unstoppable. But all he's done to this point is hit the Black Mass on Cody Rhodes and Arn Anderson, and his neophyte son. I'm not saying Black isn't being booked well. I actually like the entire package, and I don't mind the idea of him going through the entire Nightmare family, but it hasn't been exceptionally exciting. And why you're starting with Brock Anderson in this match, in the main event of Dynamite, I will never know. So clearly he's going to fight Lee Johnson, and then I presume Dustin Rhodes is next, and then I presume Cody Rhodes will come back and fight Malachi Black. I think he'll probably lose to him a second time, but my guess is that a rematch with Cody is what's coming down the pike here. But again, it's Malachi Black. It's Aleister Black. Like, man, I want more. I don't want him fighting Dustin Rhodes and Lee Johnson and Brock Anderson for two months. You know, I, I want I want meat on this bone and I'm not getting it right now. And, and that's not exciting me, unfortunately. Andrade El Idolo and Chavo Guerrero had another 30 second tape promo where they said the same shit that they have for the last month. Miro cut his same promo about Fuego de Sol and demanding Eddie Kingston fight him, who again, Kingston has no claim to the TNT title and Miro has no reason to specifically challenge Kingston that he has stated. Um, we talk about it, you know, on this podcast. Is this Andrade and Miro being used better, quote unquote, in AEW? I mean, I certainly think Miro has made massive improvements since the video game shtick that he you know, debuted with, but Andrade and Miro, we basically never seen them wrestle. I know we're going to get the Andrade Pac match at All Out. I left that out of my criticism earlier. That's probably the match I'm looking forward to second most on that entire card. But outside of that match, like what's Andrade done? Is his character work any better? Are his promos any better? Is Miro being elevated in any way other than being dominant for a very short period of time, which by the way, during his WWE career, he did have stretches of significant dominance. I don't really know. And honestly, 
I, it's not even that. Like, I don't want to criticize AEW for booking Andrade and Miro this way. I just want to see these guys on TV. I want to see them wrestle. I want to see Miro squashing people. I want to see Andrade knocking the rust off and having some good matches with a Wheeler Utah or a Danny Garcia or just some of these guys, this young talent that AEW has. Beat them. Beat them on TV. Like, why is it just the same promo every week? I, I don't get it. Uh, also, a couple more things here. FTR said that Cash Wheeler's injury did not progress the way they hoped, so they weren't sure you know, what was going to happen with him. And I, I thought the promo, and maybe I just misunderstood it, I thought it was them saying, hey, he's not going to be back anytime soon, and they really don't know what's going to happen. But they still owed Santana and Ortiz a beating. And then later in Dynamite, they announced that they're going to have a match. So I guess he's okay. So maybe I just misunderstood the opening promo or maybe I got distracted. And if so, that's 100% on me and not on them. Uh, But when they do have this match, Santana and Ortiz really should win because a matchup with the Young Bucks after All Out to change the titles, perhaps at that Arthur Ashe show in Queens where they're from, they're from New York, that would make all the sense in the world. And that is what I hope the booking is gonna be in the tag team division. Dark Order backstage argued about Hangman Page. There was a bunch of infighting with Evil Uno getting all of the other guys mad at him. And then Bunny approached Ty Conti backstage and offered her a contract to join the HFO and stop hanging out with the Dark Order losers. She got so mad at that, ripped up the contract, and they brawled. Uh, they're going to have a match coming up. Both were basic, but totally fine. Uh, the Dark Order infighting, it's kind of interesting. And I wonder what's going to happen if, when Hangman Page comes back, he winds up not so much joining them, but like reuniting them as he continues his quest towards going after Kenny Omega and the AEW championship. Something is missing on Dynamite without Page. It really is. He was that linchpin that kind of connected the younger talent that is still kind of getting built up and needs experience with the veteran talent that is top tier because he is a younger wrestler, but he's also top tier and he's been in the industry for a good bit. So he was kind of the linchpin for me in AEW. And right now, without him being there, things kind of all seem disconnected. I don't know if it's completely on him. Maybe it's also AEW signing a lot of talent they didn't think that that would be available and trying to factor them into storylines where they previously had other things planned, not to mention the CM Punk debut, not to mention plans that it seems like they are making uh, currently for the debut of Brian Danielson, not to mention possibly bringing in Bray Wyatt as well. Um, not to mention possibly bringing in Adam Cole. So just the last couple of weeks, outside of the CM Punk thing on Rampage, which was done perfect, it was totally incredible. It seemed a little disjointed to me. And I am kind of wondering if that continues on the go-home week to All Out or if things start to coalesce and we get two really solid go-home shows and are able to get extremely excited for that pay-per-view. So that is really it for NXT and AEW this week. Next week, of course, is the go-home week to all out. And I'm not exactly sure yet how we're going to handle that on this podcast, whether we're going to do the ultimate preview on Thursday show or whether we may even do it after Rampage on Friday. It's probably going to depend what AEW books on Wednesday for Friday's go home show and whether we feel like that needs to be covered separately before we get to all out itself. So I think the plan right now is probably to do the ultimate preview on Thursday and talk about Rampage during the all-out instant analysis, which will come 
on Sunday as soon as that pay-per-view goes off the air. And yes, you notice I've said Sunday a couple times. All Out is going to be on Sunday because it is week one of college football on Saturday. Therefore, I guess Tony Khan did not want to uh, go head-to-head with the Clemson-Georgia game, which should be a fantastic game and draw a lot of attention on Saturday night. And I do think it's really smart given that WWE does not have a pay-per-view on that specific Sunday to go ahead and do it on Sunday. However, the rest of fall against uh, football, AEW pay-per-views will be back on Saturday because Tony Khan does not want to compete with the NFL, which I think is smart. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. I know WWE already has its pay-per-views booked, I believe for Sundays in the fall, but I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future, WWE does more Saturday pay-per-views. I believe they are doing that with this new day one show that is going to be in Atlanta on New Year's Day, January 1st. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a couple of those, you know, uh, sprinkled throughout the calendar here and there. But yeah, AEW next week, indeed on a Sunday. As far as what's next here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, before we get to the all-out instant analysis next Sunday, before we get to whether there is even a Friday show or the NXT and AEW show on Thursday, we will be back on Tuesday to talk all things WWE. It's going to be a very exciting, it's a highly anticipated edition of SmackDown on Friday. Maybe one of the most anticipated editions of SmackDown that we've gotten in a long time. Becky Lynch is back. Brock Lesnar is back. Obviously, Roman Reigns is still champion. We want to know about the fallout for Bianca Belair. We're just very curious about everything that's going to happen. And I am excited to see this SmackDown. I certainly hope that some of the people that have been brought over there recently, Finn Balor and Tony Storm in particular, uh, get featured on the show now that the SummerSlam booking is out of the way. I am really curious to see what we get Friday on SmackDown and Rampage as we head into next week. But that is it for today. Uh, The Silver King has taken up plenty of your time already. A reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast So do not forget to leave five-star ratings and reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. I mention it twice a show because that's how important it is. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So with all that, I'll bid you adieu and just leave you with three final words. Bye for now.